This is Barnaby Edwards, and you are listening to the Doctor Who podcast. You are most welcome. Actor, artist, writer, producer, director, Dalek. It's an interview with Barnaby Edwards. But wait, that's not all. We'll throw in a review of Big Finish play, The Spectre of Lanyon Moore, at no extra charge. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Doctor Who podcast. I'm here in the camper van with Michelle. Hi, Michelle. Hello, Ian. Well, it is a pleasure to be back in the camper van with you. And boy, have we got a show today. We're going to start out with yet another interview from Big Finish Day, which was held all the way back in March. But our roving interviewers, Tony and Laura, were able to capture so many interviews with the guests there that we're uh, continuing to share those with you uh, off and on as time permits on the podcast. And in fact, there's still lots of content yet to come from Tony and Laura. Uh, and yes, definite friends of the show and indeed regular contributors now. So while they were at Big Finish Day, they did a number of recordings for us. And uh, one of them was an interview with Dalek operator, Big Finish contributor and all-round polymath, Barnaby Edwards. Tony and Laura for the Doctor Who podcast, and we are here with one Barnaby Edwards. Hello, Barnaby. Hello. Um, I'm sorry you couldn't get two Barnaby Edwardses, but at least you've got one. Well, we talked to Nick Pegg last week at Big Blue Box 2, so it makes a lot of sense to talk to you now today as well. Um, you're a polymath, I feel. You have, <laughs> you have strings in so many bows, but let's start with your role as a Dalek on Doctor Who. How did you even get that part in the first place? Well, it's interesting that you spoke to Nick Pegg last week because it's largely down to him. Nick and I were both at the same drama school together, um, the Guildford School of Acting, and immediately after we graduated, Nick knew the people who were involved in 30 Years in the TARDIS, and they'd asked him, because he's, as you know, a tall person, he's six foot three or something, so they'd asked him to be the cyber leader. And then they said, the following week we're doing Daleks. Do you know anyone from drama school who'd like to come up and be a Dalek? And he very generously suggested my name, and so that's the first time that I did it for 30 years in the TARDIS. So I've been doing Daleks now for 20 years. And I'm, obviously I was about 12 at the time that I first did them. Of course, yes, yes. And does it help to be a slightly shorter person to fit into a Dalek? Not in the new ones, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> they're very big. Uh, not really, because when you think about it, the difference between... I'm 5'9 and Nick 6'3". Yeah, but Nick's the, very tall. Yeah, but the difference between us is mainly in the legs. The torso, when you're sitting down, is the same... It's pretty much the same height. So that it's more cramped for Nick than it is for me. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's because you're sitting down the whole time, it's really in the, the length of the legs, that's fine because the Dalek is wide enough to, and long enough to, to accommodate extra leg room. And obviously the minibar and, the, uh, and uh, all the playstations that are in there and all the comfort and the upholstery and the studded leather and... That's just what I'm wearing. <laughs> we saw your reaction to the Dalek that a fan had made at the fair room. 
um, Dalek conference and how impressed you were with this. So I'm not convinced the BBC ones are that good. <laughs> no, um, you'll be very pleased to hear, as BBC licence payers, that virtually no money has been spent on, on the inside of the Dalek from 1963 until the present day. Uh, in fact, when we did Asylum of the Daleks, I got to operate some of the old 1960s ones, genuine 1960s ones, and they were so much nicer to operate. They were so much lighter, more more visibility, more breathing space. Um, so, yeah, that's it's... Um, anyway, what am I complaining about? It's the best job in the world. <laughs> were you worried about crashing any of those 60s Daleks? Well, yes, they're quite delicate. Um, and uh, I did a... There's a bit where Matt... Matt is running out of the of the room and everything's blowing up and self-destruct. Oswin's just started the self-destruct. And there's a little 1960s one that spins round in an explosion. And, uh, yeah, because I'd asked to do that. They were going to have it as a bronze Dalek. And I said, oh, come on, let's please let's have a 60s Dalek in that thing. thing. So I did that and I got in it. But there's virtually no protection in that at all. I could feel the heat of the flames coming through the, through the grill and everything like that. And I was desperately trying not to bash anything of it because it was, it was pretty much falling to pieces. So it was like operating a, a, a Chippendale Dalek. And the fact that there's been consistency with the people who have acted in the Daleks since the show has come back, has that helped, be, uh, helped their portrayal? I think so, yes. It's made them more varied, certainly, because what we do with each director... And I've made that a point from you know, from Dalek onwards of, of speaking to the directors and saying, what would you like? What new stuff do you want? And they'll say, what haven't you done before? And then we'll go, well, we haven't done fast before or uh, we haven't done, you know, confused or we haven't done... And so we're always trying to do new things with the Daleks in order to, to give that development, which I don't think if you had new people in, they'd sort of be learning the basics again each time. And particularly the thing that we do now that we can only really do because you've done so much experience in it is formation work. Uh, and that's the thing that's really hard because you can't see your fellow Daleks. So you have to train and train and train and train until you all go at the same speed because you literally can't see them at the side of the Dalek. Um, and stopping distances and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's in the same way that you, when, you, when you first learn to drive a car, or the longer you learn to drive a car, you get a sense of how big your car is so you don't keep crashing every time you park. Well, some people. Um, and I think it's the same with the Daleks. You get this sort of sixth sense of, of being in a Dalek because you can't see the outside world really when you're in there. You have to use your spidey sense. How good are you on ramps? Well, I'm pretty good on ramps. Um, uh, they, when they brought the, the Black Dalek in, Dalek Sec, that was about the time, same time they had the Film and Television Awards. And uh, that was actually Dalek Sec's first appearance was for, for an error of judgment. Cardiff sent up the secret Black Dalek right. to appear on an ITV um, show by accident. Anyway, I went to do that. And uh, I had to come up onto this podium with Russell T. Davis and people like that. And in the rehearsals, um, I sort of, they showed me this ramp. And the ramp must have been like a one in four ramp, 25% ramp. And I was, I, I sort of, cool, because you can't lean forward in a dial. You don't have that extra leverage that you would do on a, on a wheelchair or on a, on, a, on a sort of office chair or anything like that. You can't lean forward. You hit the side of the dial. So I, I crawled up. My legs were burning in agony. And it was maybe a 15 or 20 feet ramp. And by the time I got to the top, and they said, fine, they, they said, OK, that's, that's going to be OK for the timing. And they went, could you not do it any faster? And then they took the top off, and I was utterly drenched in sweat. And I said, I can't do it any faster and live. Um, and for the actual thing, they had, they had someone push me up silently, dressed in black, uh, behind me. Um, but yeah, that was a nightmare. But I'm, quite, I'm reasonably good at, at... 
What am I saying? I'm, I'm actually pretty hopeless at rams. When we did Dalek, I had to... That, that final scene which has got Rose and the Doctor, and the Doctor's got a big gun and Rose is protecting the Dalek, that is, you can't really tell, it's on an incredibly slow um, uh, upward ramp uh, in, a, in a car park. So it's all done for drainage. And that was a... And I had to do on on a track. They had to put me on a, on a sort of train track and I had to put my feet in between these other things. And there's loads of outtakes of Billy sort of looking concertedly ahead and then you just hear and I've just have run over my foot or something like that or the Dalek's fallen off the, the rack or something yeah so I'm not very good at ramps Daleks aren't I, I'm okay as a person you're okay out of a Dalek outfit you're, you're okay with ramps yeah I mean, I'm usually okay at most things out of a Dalek outfit <laughs> how difficult is it to express all the anger and rage and evil of a Dalek through a, a fairly limited set of, of movements well it's, I mean, it's a very interesting thing that of all the monsters, the Daleks are the only ones that are still played by, in inverted commas, actors. They're not played by supporting artists or extras. Um, and I think there's a very good reason for that, is that it is incredibly hard to get any emotion out of what is essentially entirely solid. Mm. It's not got a flexible part to it. It's not got, like, you know, Cybermen have got flexible things that they can move and, and ice warriors and whatever. But a Dalek is just a collection of very hard objects. Um, so, uh, as I know from being inside them and hitting things with them, but the so yeah, I think it it is quite tricky. But we have to develop a kind of Dalek language and what they do, and it's largely on the sort of eye turns and the speed of them, and approaching and backing off and stuff like that. And I did lots of lots of stuff because I'm about ten Daleks in Asylum of the Daleks, and all of the Oswin stuff. That's me and Oswin breaking free and things, and it's. Um, it is, I know it sounds utterly ridiculous, and it's not Hamlet, and it's not Kingly or anything like that, but it is, it is very much a performance thing. And when we rehearse, we don't rehearse inside the Daleks, we rehearse outside with our fellow actors, and you, know, you give the full performance. Uh, and, uh, and then you have to carry it, hope that translates into, into the Dalek. But it's all down to tiny little twitches and things like that. I mean, it's a, it is a fascinating thing, because I've never done any form of puppetry before. I'm a normal, just a stage and film and radio actor, and, and it's, it's weird to to have to try and bring to life this, this creature. I guess it's easy to waggle the plunger and make it look comical rather than sinister. Yeah, I mean, we are all sort of inured to the look of a Dalek because we grew up with a Dalek and you know, in the, for the whole of our lives we've seen what a Dalek looks like. But it was very interesting when we had one of the actresses in Dalek was from, um, uh, she was from Canada, I think she'd done Stargate, and she'd never seen a Dalek before. And when it first came along, she just laughed. That was her instant reaction to a Dalek. She thought it was ridiculous. And they had to keep saying, no, no, no. These are, you're supposed to be terrified of these when you, when you do them. Um, so, yeah, there is a, you have to sort of avoid, avoid the, the, the comic uh, things. Mind you, we knock so much stuff over that, that it is, comedy comes naturally. And do you view them as an ensemble performance? Yeah, very much so, very much so. When we... Um, because uh, Nick and I, uh, Nick Pegg and I, trained up all of the supporting artists who were the extra Daleks in Asylum. And it is very much a team thing. It's like Team Dalek or whatever. You do very much have to work as a unit uh, in order to get them. And there are, I mean, largely, there's pretty much, you know, Nick and I are pretty much the same level of experience on, on being in Daleks. But, you know, you get some operators who are slightly less experienced, slightly more experienced, and you get someone who can do some things better than others. Um, for when, when we were doing Asylum, we had sort of small, medium and, and grande-sized Daleks to train people in, and some of the uh, supporting artists couldn't work in the small Daleks because they were, they, they were too big for them, even though Nick could. 
um, and some of the some of the smaller dialogue operators couldn't work in the big ones because they simply didn't have the leg power. Um, so it is interesting. Some people are good at some things, and some people are good at turns. Some people are good at spinning on, turning on the spot. You know, Nick and I have to do everything. And how do you work with Nick Briggs doing the voice? That's almost entirely symbiotic now. It's a, it's a, to a preposterous degree. We've done so many live events that I literally just hear his voice and I'll move the Dalek, even if he's saying nonsense, even if he's mucking stuff up, to the extent that there are lots of outtakes of, of, of him accidentally... Well, not lots, because he's very good about not making mistakes, but when he does accidentally make a mistake, he'll swear, and I will do all the full Dalek moves to the swear word, because I haven't even thought about it. I've just heard Briggs's voice and, like Pavlov's dogs, my body has reacted. Um, <laughs> That's just when you're in the costume. <laughs> you don't just react whenever he speaks. Um, <laughs> no, sometimes I do. We did a Doctor Who convention in, um, in L.A. last year, and uh, I found myself moving whenever Nick answered the question. How bizarre. So are we going to be able to see you on the screens in the new series? Um, well, obviously, um, if I told you that, I would have to kill you, um, exterminate you at the least. Um, well, I would hope they're going to return. I, I can tell you categorically that as of this point now, I have not shot anything. Um, so uh, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Well, fingers crossed. Um, but as well as being a, a fabulous Dalek actor, you're also a director, um, and you've script-written things for Big Finish. Um, what have you got for Big Finish at the moment? What's coming up? Um, well, I've just had two uh, releases that have just come out, which are Sixth Doctor and Mel releases. So that's Colin Baker and Bonnie Langford. Uh, and I'm very, I really enjoyed doing both of those. Um, I got one of them I got Ronald Pickup in, as, and he's just amazing, Ronald Pickup. He's such a fantastic, fantastic voice actor. Uh, and in the other one I got, uh, well, I've got a brilliant cast for, for both of them, but I got um, Ray Fearon, who is a fantastic actor. He's the voice of the centaur in Harry Potter. He's got the most beautiful, beautiful voice, and he's playing a sort of tough um, uh, starship trooper. Um, but both of them are great. And it was lovely to work with with Colin and Bonnie, and and, and uh, you know, especially because I know I've worked with Colin several times since, but it's been ages since I've worked with Bonnie. So it was lovely to be back with her, and she's she's so professional and so on the ball, and she can do things with with Mel that you you know on the script it isn't even there on the script, and she can bring something to it. So those are two I really enjoyed that the Spaceport Fear and Seeds of War, and I've just this week been directing. Um, uh, uh, Fifth Doctor audio, which I can't really say anything about, other than the fact that I think it's a really good, it's a great idea um, uh, for a story, and uh, I think it's going to be good. It sounded great in the studio, so hopefully it'll be brilliant. So, how do they decide who is going to direct a particular big finish story? Um, uh, I think just Ken Bentley and Nick Briggs do all of them. Um, <laughs> uh, no, how they decide is, well, I think they just, you know, they, they as with everything, really, as with their scripts as well, they, they get the story idea and they think who's the best sort of person for this kind of story. Um, and uh, specifically, you know, the one that I've just been directing this week, which I can't really say, has a musical element and none of the other directors uh, wanted to really touch it and it was exactly right up my street and I wanted to do it. Um, so uh, that's, that's sort of how I got, I got that one. When you were looking at the relationship between the Sixth Doctor and Mel in the, the most recent audios, um, how did you approach it? Because it's not always the most popular um, companion and Doctor combination from the TV era. I think it's very important when you're doing this to 
be aware of of the the past history of the people that you're working with, as it were. So you, if if Colin's doctor was too abrasive, and that's what people didn't like when they when they saw him on television, I think you know Big Finish and Colin have made this fantastic renaissance of of the Sixth Doctor and brought a much more rounded performance. And I think, I mean, I'm very well, the thing I, one of the things I like about the audios. Um, as opposed to a sort of TV version, is that you have much more space for character work. You have much more space to, to work with actors and get emotions out of them and do that kind of thing. And they all love that. So I, um, when I'm doing something like the Six Doctor and Mel thing, you want all the joyous things you remember, all the repartee, but none of the sort of... Sort of nothing that, 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 would, that you would class as being irritated. So everyone's all on the same, all on the same uh, playing field, all singing from the same song sheet on that. Um, and uh, it's just a question of I'm always conscious when I'm directing an audio that every character even the Doctor and the Companion have various journeys through the play uh, there, there they have sort of different pacings within the play and, and you know, there are some bits that are emotional for them and some bits that are action sequences for them and things like that and I, the, one of the things I try and do as a director is to, is to try and give each of those moments a great, uh, uh, as much uh, oomph as possible um, so if it is looked like it's going to be a comedy thing, I want them to play it absolutely as, as much of a comedy as they can do so that by the time you hit a tragic thing where a character's killed or something, then, it, then it, it, you get that roller coaster ride rather than just like a straight sort of steamroller. You've also acted in a number of Big Finish uh, performances. You've been a, a casting director. You've written scripts. Do you prefer any one of those roles particularly or do you enjoy the variety? I have to say, um, the acting is the easiest, certainly. Um, uh, uh, and you, it gives, does give you a new, new perspective. When you've actually had to sit down and write a brand new Doctor Who story that's never existed before, and then you turn up and you sort of... You, you, and then the next week you're just going up to do half a dozen scenes in another thing, you think, God, this is easy. I haven't had to sit down and look at a blank piece of paper and think, how do I come up with it, anything? Um, so I find the writing definitely the hardest, but I think you'll find that with every writer. They sort of say um, the actual process of writing is horrible, but the feeling of having written is wonderful. When you've finished it and you've got your printed out script and you think, I wrote that, that didn't exist until I sat down and wrote it, that's brilliant. But for every second that you're on there, think, you keep thinking, I wonder if... I wonder if Dickinson's real deal's on. I mean, I think I probably do need to watch that. Or maybe, maybe I should go on Facebook for a bit and play Scrabble. Uh, that might be quite good. Or maybe I, I might do a couple of tweets. Ra- anything rather than writing. It's, uh, I've, so I find, that, I find it the toughest thing to do, writing. But I suppose, because it's the toughest, the most rewarding having written. And you've also been producing, uh, sorry, directing Treasure Island um, with one Tom Baker. I'm looking for a long John Silver. Such is my name, to be sure. And who may you be? How was that? That's fantastic. I mean, that's, that's a real... Because uh, every now and then, Big Finish just give me something and let me do everything, which is great. So I produced Treasure Island, I wrote it, I wrote the adaptation of it, and I directed it, and I'm in it. Um, so it's a, uh, I, mean, I, I, I love the story, and I've always loved the story. It's been one of my favourite sort of children's books. And when I found out that Tom really loved the story, um, uh, I... They Big Finish sort of put two and two together and invited me up and I went to have meetings with Tom Baker about the, how he saw the story which was great and we were exactly on the same 
level apart from he had he envisaged a little bit more naughtiness I think in it um, but I was saying we must make it more like the novel Tom uh, but the you know he is superb in it really yeah, I can sort of sit back uh, at having done nothing to contribute to Tom's performance and just say that he, you know, he does an amazing thing because we sort of we're used to Tom playing the Doctor and we're used to the fantastic little Britain Tom and the, the voiceover Tom and things like that but it's been, for me, certainly, it's been a long while since I've seen a really new and exciting performance that I don't think I've seen before from Tom, as it were. Because you sort of, there's the regular Tom that you, sort of, you think you know. But, but in Treasure Island, he's doing a really brilliant character performance. This bird may be 200, 300 years old, Hawkins, at least. And if anyone's seen more wickedness, it must be the devil himself. <laughs> And it's just so thrilling to hear that. Um, and he was so behind the whole project and everything. Um, so, yeah, Treasure Island, I'm, I'm really pleased about that. And I do, I do hope people really enjoy it. And certainly the advanced sort of reviews and things that have happened have been very good, which is very nice. Um, but, yeah, that was... Um, I love doing that. It's a great book. And I really, uh, I really made an effort with the adaptation. And I've got a fantastic cast for it. And uh, Howard Carter has done the most amazing sound design and music for it. And... and just I was it's like sort of you know I, I had the entire project from the from the start to the end and uh, I had great input on all the design I wrote all the booklet for it and everything so everything is to, is to do with with me and it's not it's not an ego trip it's just that I feel so passionately about it that I loved uh, I love sort of doing that so I feel very close to that kind of thing as I did with with Phantom of the Opera I feel very close to those because the whole creation process I've been involved in right from the start to the finish and it's not like someone's asked me to do it as it were they haven't said you will be writing it like this or anything I've, I've had a completely free hand on those well thank you very much indeed for talking to us Barnaby and uh, we will hope to see you or hear you uh, in some audiobooks very soon absolutely it's always a pleasure to speak to you guys and, and I do hope that people listen to this lots and lots and lots and lots because you guys are brilliant Well, thank you, Barnaby, and thank you, Tony and Laura. That was wonderful to listen to. As he mentioned in the interview, he and Nicholas Briggs sat on a panel together. It was just the two of them uh, at Gallifrey 23 back in uh, 2012 in L.A., and I got to see that. That was one of the best panels I have ever seen at any convention. They were a fantastic pair. They played off each other really well, and it, it was wonderful to see them. Yes, uh, I had the pleasure of seeing Nick Briggs myself at uh, Gallifrey this year, and of course Nick Pegg as well, who I met at Gallifrey and also interviewed in Big Blue Box. And it is somewhat ironic that the the team of people that make the Daleks the most evil and hated creatures in the universe are all such lovely and entertaining people to talk to. They're incredibly personable, and it's amazing, you know, another thing that Nick Briggs and Barnaby Edwards seem to have in common is that they are these these Renaissance men. There are so many things that they both do, and Barnaby, you know, has done. He's written for Big Finish. He's performed for Big Finish. He's directed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In fact, uh, looking at his list of accomplishments, he's been directly involved in well over two dozen of uh, Big Finish's stories. 
And it goes right back to the start. Uh, the other thing that we have on the agenda for today is to take a look at uh, the Big Finish audio, the Spectre of Lanyon Moore. This was only the ninth audio that they released uh, in the monthly range for Doctor Who. And Barnaby Edwards is in that, too. He plays one of the characters. So maybe we should hear a little bit of that and then talk about it. Here, take my hand. It's very kind of you. Um... Philip. Philip Lovejet. Very kind of you, Philip. Well, that settles it. I told the professor we should have put up some sort of warning sign. I don't know what you think is so dangerous, young man. Hello? You're getting some very high readings, Mr. Ludgate. Well, my point exactly. 7.4, that's most unusual for a granite upland. You're familiar with geoelectrical isography? Oh, I get by. Look, why don't you both come down to the Institute? Have you had breakfast yet? No, we haven't. Uh, what Institute would that be? It's where I work, Lanyon Moore Archaeological Institute. Nowhere near as grand as it sounds, I'm afraid. You're an archaeologist. Certainly am. Or at least I will be, once I finish my PhD. This features Barnaby Edwards, but was also written by his fellow Dalek operator, Nick Pegg. So we've got sort of double dialects going on in this particular story. I have to say, I really enjoyed Spectre of Lanyon more. It's a Sixth Doctor story, uh, and I'll be honest, I know this goes against the, the sort of accepted wisdom most people have. I still don't usually enjoy Colin's work on Big Finish. Uh, I, maybe it's because I can't get past my bad memories of the TV show. Uh, I don't know. But for some reason, his, his version of The Doctor still doesn't quite click for me. But I really enjoyed this one. and It was a, a really enjoyable story and a, a lovely atmosphere to it as, it as it goes across the moors and the various spooky things uh, take place. Well, one of the fun things about this is that it's only the second story for new companion to the Doctor Who universe back then, uh, Dr. Evelyn Smythe. Uh, she was introduced in one of the very first Big Finish plays as a new companion for the Sixth Doctor, and I love her. I think, in fact, looking at both televised companions and audio companions, she is one of my favorite companions of the Doctor, hands down. Uh, and so we were really still learning about Evelyn Smythe and who she was and what she was like. And Nicholas Pegg just makes this a wonderful story for her. Maggie Stables plays her, and she's got this incredible voice for audio that, that is so rich and, and has such great inflection and great character. Uh, I, I could just listen to her all day long. And watching this older uh, professor of history character work with the sixth doctor and, and not take any guff from him and give him what's for, uh, the banter that they have, the relationship that they have is just a delight. Yes, maybe it is Evelyn that's making the difference for me in terms of enjoying Colin's performance because, oddly enough, the, the previous story you just talked about, The Marion Conspiracy, is another one of my favourites. So, again, certainly these are the two high points for me of what I've heard of Colin's work so far. So it's possibly that dynamic with Evelyn that helps contain the Sixth Doctor's uh, more exuberant personality that makes it uh, work better for me. And, of course, the other thing we've got in this story is the first appearance of the Brigadier, Nicholas Kirtney, in Big Finish. And it's a lovely moment when they meet together in the house and uh, the, doc the, the Doctor recognises the Brigadier. And the Brigadier just understands straight away without having seen the Sixth Doctor before, oh, I know who you must be. Uh, a, a really nice moment and really well uh, played between the two actors. Um, allow me to introduce the... Uh... Brigadier! Oh, have you two met before? We most certainly have. Lethbridge Stewart, you old rogue, how are you? I'm extremely well, thank you. You know who I am? To judge by the clothes... The unexpected arrival and the manner of your greeting, I can only conclude that I know exactly who you are. <laughs> I take it there's a police box somewhere in the vicinity? You're getting better at this, aren't you, Brigadier? Well, I've had some experience, haven't I? It's good to see you, Doctor. What are you doing here? All in good time. 
And this is, of course, an older brigadier. It's kind of continuous in his timeline. And of course, at that time, the brigadier had never had the chance to meet the sixth doctor. So this was a great chance to put those two characters together. And they interact wonderfully. It's like they're they're old friends. You've got this sort of mature, mellowed brigadier. uh, And there's such a comfort about the way they interact with each other. Uh, Again, I, I just love spending time with these characters and watching them spend time with each other. Nicholas Courtney is always a delight to hear. And what I loved about this was that he did do some of the traditional brigadier taking charge, but we didn't dive off into a sort of third Doctor style unit story. Uh, he just took charge and got things done and it stayed w- within the, the, the cast we had there. And he was brilliant. He was absolutely fantastic. Um, always a wonderful character and always great to have him back. And he really added a lot to this story uh, and helped make it into an extremely entertaining um, play. The other character that I thought was really uh, quite fascinating in this one was Sir Archibald Flint, played by James Bolam, who I found incredibly reminiscent of Chase Harrison from The Seeds of Doom. Mm. It's it's maybe just because I've watched Seeds of Doom recently, but I found his vocal inflection, the style, the whole sort of setup of the character of being this sort of extraordinarily eccentric to the point of madness aristocrat in his massive country pile. Okay, they're not that rare in in Doctor Who, but (laughs) this particular one, I found... I kept thinking it was Chase Harrison. I kept thinking in my mind it was the same character, which is no bad thing, because I I love Chase. He's one of my favourite mad lunatics from Doctor Who. Well, yes, and then you get to see Evelyn kind of stand up to this pretty intense villain. I mean, she, here in her second story, faces some pretty horrific uh, events. A couple of the cliffhangers are at her expense, as it were, and uh, she handles herself wonderfully. She also ends up seeing some fairly gruesome uh, scenes of death and disaster in this, and and yet uh, plays it very credibly as someone who is affected by that, and yet still um, has her dignity and presence of mind and um, equanimity to a certain extent so interesting and you know i'd say that all of the characters are are well drawn in this uh and well played my family has always prided itself in being among this country's most loyal servants it is fashionable nowadays for those with no sense of duty or history to despise the so-called privileged classes our institutions are becoming overrun by the worst kind of parvenu well my service may no longer be required but my blood cannot be taken from me so easily. Oh, don't let's get above ourselves, old chum. You're only a baronet, you know. That makes you a commoner, like me. You might think I have no sense of history, but I'm sufficiently up on the subject to know that your ancestors probably bought you your place on the lowest rung of the aristocracy. Your envy ill becomes you, Doctor. Anyway, what's all this got to do with Alistair Crowley? How does the dissolution of morality fit in with some two-bit lordling with a screw loose getting ideas above his station? Crowley, of all men, knew that his flock needed leadership. And a prophet, after all, is merely one who prepares the way for a messiah. Oh, I see. A messiah. And that would be you, would it? Have a care, Dr. Smythe. I am on the threshold of fulfilling my destiny. Well, that's nice for you. It was really nice to see Evelyn playing off against Sarah Archibald. And she, I mean, it's one of the great strengths of Evelyn's character is that she doesn't just go into the, the, the screaming uh, damsel in distress mode that so many companions do. And in fact, the, the, the point where she sits down having been locked up and starts just plotting, OK, what do we need to do now? It's just wonderful. It's, it's really nicely done. And it's almost like she's a, 
sort of mini doctor of her own without having to try to copy the doctor. She just seems to be one of those capable women that will get things done. (laughs) Well, changing the topic from the characters a little bit, uh, another feature I liked of this, which kind of harkened back to the early days of Doctor Who, is that we learned a little history along the way. I I love the sequence where the Doctor and Evelyn are discovering Fugus and a tumulus and talking about the Stone Age and talking about the Iron Age and what was happening in Cornwall at those times. Uh, I just That was laced through the story without getting preachy uh, and I just love that getting a little bit of that educational stuff along the way uh, and makes you kind of curious to go see these things and learn a little more about the history so Doctor Who at its best I think the only trouble I had is that uh, for me fugu is the, the Japanese fish that's poisonous and the uh-huh. great delicacy that poisons people and it kept I kept getting confused about that because every time that it was mentioned my mind went in completely the wrong way but that's just me really I can't blame Big Finish for that <laughs> no, but, you know, when you hear people list their lists of their favorite big finishes or big finishes that would be good starting points for people who want to listen for the first time, very often the specter of Lanyon Moore uh, appears on those lists. This one is a, a listener favorite, and I think with good cause. I can certainly see that. And in fact, I think the combination of the Marion conspiracy and this one would make for a really strong pair that I would certainly consider putting forward as being a, a way to get into Big Finish, and especially as the, the Marion has the introduction of Evelyn. And so therefore, a little bit of general, you know, get going. And whenever a companion comes in, you always have a little bit of introduction. So that makes it a great jumping on point, uh, no matter what uh, medium we're talking about. And I love the Marion. I mean, you talk about the history of the Marion conspiracy with another historical, which don't usually tip my my boxes but mm. that was a great story immediately followed by this which is a fantastic story okay and this one is actually sent in contemporary times but has a lot of references back to early history the, the only thing i found slightly odd about this was was the the, the alien menace which is introduced in the very first reel um I, I, I struggled a little bit with some of the way that worked it, it, it they were a little bit too cackling monster for, for my taste but to be honest they didn't make a huge part of the story so it didn't really matter. But the, the, the way they just became so unremittingly evil and, and nasty. Um, I suppose we, 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 we're used to so many stories now where, where the monster turns out to be good after all and just misunderstood to have one that actually was, no, this is a really evil, nasty creature that you wouldn't invite for dinner. It was mm-hmm. a bit of a shock, I suppose. Yeah, this was a very grumpy monster, but the but the monster had reason to be grumpy. It uh, isn't a monster. You know, I, I had listened to this story quite a while ago, and I had no memory at all of, of what the creature was. So it wasn't one, I guess, that stuck in my memory. What I remembered was the interactions between the characters, in particular the Doctor, the Brigadier, and Evelyn. So um, that really carries it for me, and, and uh, the monster doesn't detract from it. Yes, no, I wouldn't say detract from the story. It, it, it was just something that, uh, that caught my attention in a couple of places. Uh, but the the real story is driven by the characters that uh, we, we've already discussed as being a, a really wonderful uh, collection. So yes, a, a highly recommended story. Yes, so you, you've had a little bit of a, a Dalek Operator episode here, having listened to Barnaby Edwards and having listened to a, an episode penned by Nicholas Pegg. Uh, go out there and, and take a look at some of their other work. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye for now. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, 
Facebook and via the Doctor Who podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. Um, um, I highly recommended story. And then I think I'm going to stop talking because I can't speak right now. You sound good, though. You sound healthy. Well, thank you. That's just my professionalism coming through. Show must go on, love.